0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy
1: Podcast. This is the
0: French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Today's guest is author Jane Martin. Now, Jane earned her MFA in creative writing uh, from the University of Michigan and has an MA in drama from Tufts University. Following her MFA, she was a Fulbright Fellow, which is very awesome, at McGill University in Montreal, where she researched her Québécois heritage. Her fiction and essays have appeared in the Southern Review, the Michigan Quarterly Review, the Massachusetts Review, Contemporary French Civilization, and other journals. She is currently the fiction editor for Resonance, which is a journal we've previously spoken about on this podcast, and she currently teaches writing at McGill University. Jane, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank
0: you. Cool. I'd like to start with your background. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Bitterford. My uh, mother grew up in Bitterford. My father grew up in Saco. My grandparents, some grew up in Bitterford. Some grew up in Fort Kent. Some grew up in, in Canada. All my great grandparents came from Quebec, but I grew up in, in Bitterford.
0: So you were had the French Canadian descent on all sides?
1: Yes. So all eight great grandparents. Either uh, Quebecois, Acadian, um, there's some Iroquois as far as I understand. Oh, wow. So some Acadian on my mother's mother's side, Iroquois on my father's father's side. Um, and other than that, um, all Quebecois, really.
0: That's cool. Now, so how many of your grandparents spoke French in the house? And how about your folks? Did they speak French like, growing up?
1: Even though my, both my parents were born in the United States, uh, French was their first language. My mom only learned to speak English when she was 14, even though oh, wow. she yeah, grew up in Biddeford. And all four of my grandparents, their first language was French. My, my grandmothers, my memes, um, really spoke little English, actually, ever. Uh, they did speak English, but it was it was uh, French. Was they were much more comfortable in French. My grandfather's spoke uh, French as a first language, but they were both they were perfectly bilingual, um, so they spoke English as well. So yeah, I grew up very much in a, in a you know a house where um, French was present every day. Um, it was my parents would speak to each other in French. Sure. They would speak to their parents, their sisters. They would speak to us in a in a mix. Um, I'm the youngest of five, so my first two siblings' first language was French. My my first language was either a mix or my, one of my brothers tells me my first word was uh, drapeau, which is flag in French. Nice. Um, but um, but I grew up very much in English during school with French as a subject, but my, my parents always spoke to us in a, in a mix of French and English. But we were expected to respond in English, at least by the time I was growing up.
0: So... Interesting. First of all, I think it's kind of cool that uh, your mother had the opportunity. To, she must have been able to go to school then entirely in
1: French. She did. So That's she. So awesome. Yeah, she was um, in um, St. Andre's school in Bitterford and St. Andre's high school. And it was 100 percent French. And I think she I asked her, you know, I've asked her various venues. Why did you. Um, so how is it that we that I spoke mostly English at home right. and she said, well, uh, by the time we you went to school, French was only a subject. My sister, who's 10 years older, um, French, I think she went to school half day French, I believe, or gotcha. something like that. Yep. And yeah. so I was coming home speaking English. And so the town, Bitterford, was also transitioning into more of an Anglophone town. So it was just sort of, the I think my parents responding to change times, whereas when they grew up, bit of primarily French. So that's how they experienced it. But then by the time I was growing a generation later, it was it was very much uh, probably predominantly English. So they were responding to, to that. Sure.
0: I think it's interesting, though, because it happened within your generation because you yeah. have older, older siblings that would have had a different experience than you. That's kind of cool. Yeah,
1: I know. Yeah, they're um, I think you know, I, I, now, I now speak French pretty decently because I've lived in Montreal eight and a half years, but like sure. my, my siblings they're I think they more naturally understood French. My first two siblings, the oldest, and they understood my parents better and my grandparents. And it really was their first language. So they were more naturally adept, I'd say at it. Whereas for me, it was, even though I grew up hearing it, what I have learned is that if your parents do not force you to speak to them, you won't really like learn. That's my sure. experience. So yeah. it was only when I forced myself on a daily basis to speak that I, you know, really began to, to speak.
0: First of all, what made you decide to go up to, to Montreal to go to school? Was that a conscious effort given your Franco American background to be like, I would love to go to pl- live in Quebec for a bit.
1: I have been living in Boston uh, for years and I, started to go up to Montreal, I went actually on a white water rafting trip. um, (laughs) And, and it was the I had grown up, you know, my mom talking about going to school in Montreal. And I, it was sort of like this, I don't know, this like family kind of, you know, mythology or something. I just knew my mom had gone to school in Montreal. And, um, but it never hit me until I went like on this trip, to Montreal for this white water tri- r- white water rafting trip, and I, I started walking around the city, and I I heard my parents' accent, you know, in the people oh, around yeah. me. Absolutely, was, right. Yeah, and it, it just hit me like this is, oh my God, this is this is the exact place where I am from, and this is the exact place where my heritage is. This is the this is why mom and dad sound like they sound, and oh my God, there's Carton totier in this. Right. In, in, yeah. in, you know in the stores and then I walked by my mom's school and I physically could see where all these stories you know she had told us about had taken sure. place and it was it was just very profound for me and so I thought and then then when I was in Boston I started dating someone who wanted to go to Montreal all the, to, all the time so we would go on you know maybe every couple months and that helps
0: start, sure yeah
1: it, I started familiarizing myself with it and I just became more connected to it and more drawn to this like sense of belonging to this one specific place. And before then, I think I had always gotten involved in other people's heritage stories like Portugal and Venezuela and Armenia and all the people I had dated had come from those places. But then when I realized I came from a very specific place in the world and a very specific culture, I thought, you know, I I have this too. And I, I actually got a little angry that like I had I feel like I had been deprived kind of this sense of having what everybody else had I'm not sure why I think it's a mix of things one of your guests I think spoke about that a little bit I forget which one but and I really identified with with her when she talked about that but then I just it was this sort of mission I, I, I thought you know I'm going to at some point live here right and after I got a master's in, 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 in Boston at Tufts, and then I got another master's at University of Michigan. And after that master's, I thought, I'm going to try for a Fulbright, and um, I'm going I'm to try to go to McGill, do my research there, and it, it just it worked out. And I um, did a year of research at McGill, and I decided to stay an additional five years. I left for two years, and then I have now been back for uh, two and a half years. So
0: very awesome now there's a ton of your personal story that i would like to get to and at the end we may double back but in the meantime i want to get to some of your work because i think we're going to get a lot of your story when you talk about some of the things you have written because clearly your perspective on cultural identity and how you view your cultural identity you can see on a lot of the things you write and it's very awesome so i would like uh to discuss a piece that you wrote called "Invisibility in Writing." Maybe you can tell us about it, and then maybe answer why 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 you were invisible, why you felt yourself invisible.
1: I had um, written a, a short called Way- "A Wayward Landmass" for the North American Review. They asked me if I would be interested in in writing a, a blog piece, kind of related to that to that short story. and And so I wrote this little essay and called "Invisibility in Writing." And um, I've just been I've been thinking. I think because, let me see, there's so much talk, especially in Canada, about um, being a visible minority, for example. So someone whose heritage is, you know, something other than, I guess, European-based or, you know, would be identified as, a, as a, a visible minority. But And there's much discussion and, and research on this. But I, I think there's, um, you know, a, a unique set of considerations, a unique set of um, experiences of pain associated with being a minority who is invisible. Um, So I think there's less permission to talk about, let's say, maybe your history and your pain and your suffering and your identity, if you are not identified as being a minority group um, as easily, let's say, in contemporary culture. So yeah, I had been thinking about, about that. And so that piece was um, just trying to discuss maybe uh, some of the unique pains of being someone who identifies very much as a ni- minority. We are, you know, if you're if you're Québécois, if you're Franco-American, if you're French-Canadian, you are very much an ethnic minority in North America, but um, we're not always I- identified. We're sort of like right. some, we're this group of like some whatever you call it, Some um, some big you know, white identity, but, but we don't really fit this, um, this, um, this typical story. I don't think many people who fall into that category, pan-ethnicity of whiteness, you know, fit into that story. We're all ethnic in some way, but so, but I really feel like we do not, like the Kibbutz story is very unique. We're colonized people in North America and, um, you know, it's been struggle, it's been immigration, it's been deportation. And so, all of those things I know about myself, but um, others may not know by simply looking at me and other Quebecois, uh, it, it was something I found myself thinking about a lot. So gotcha. that's what that little piece was. No, was that's awesome.
0: And, and you've already used a couple of different phrases, and we've had entire episodes about what we call ourselves. And you're the first one. We've heard a bunch of things, but you referred to yourself as a Quebecois-American, which I thought was we yes. Why do you choose that?
1: Well, I guess, you know, having lived now in Quebec for eight and a half years total, I see that um, in, in, in Quebec, um, okay, so like around la, la Révolution Tranquille, perception, Québécois perception of ourselves changed from being French-Canadian, which implies, you know, being a part of Canadian culture, um, to deciding that we were, you know, uh chez nous, something like that, masters of our own home. Sure. So it's really, it's very rare to hear somebody refer themselves as French-Canadian. Really, that's often a reference that an Anglophone will make about Québécois, or um, sometimes a Québécois in front of an Anglophone will say French-Canadian, but it's, it's almost like... Um, I also always cringe a little bit because um, it's almost to some conciliatory move or something. So, <laughs> you know, so the, calling our, our, you know, Québécois calling ourselves themselves Québécois is about claiming a culture, a history, a past, a territory that, um, you know, as a group, as a culture, I think Québécois have felt have been historically denied us. And so it's about reclaiming identity and no longer identifying, identifying ourselves in reference to Canada. So um, so just knowing this, it's in part for me, a bit of respect for my Quebecois ancestors who came before me and who struggled to keep this culture alive in, sure. in my 100 year you know absence from Quebec, my family's. So, however, in the United States, I often do say French Canadian just to have to avoid, you know, explaining the whole thing. And I think it's it's not as political in the United States as it would be in um, Canada necessarily. Whereas in Canada, I would feel like I was being possibly insulting, especially if Québécois people are in the room uh, sure. to say French Canadian, I would feel like I'm um, being disrespectful. So um so I, I, knowing the history now is, you know, I feel like I'm very much a Québécois American. I, I also say Franco-American, but, you know, sometimes French, Canadian, I mean the whole thing. But, but my preferred term for myself, you know, whenever it makes sense is, is Québécois American.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, did you always feel comfortable referring to yourself as a Québécois American? Or was it when you picked up enough French to justify it? Or was it having spent enough time in Quebec? you know you get to a because I don't know if I could be up there like for a couple of weeks not speaking the language and consider yeah, myself a Québécois American I would think I would have to check a couple of boxes before I got there
1: right that's interesting I think it was it was a combination of learning the history, learning learning the history and having this respect for the struggle of the québécois and um, wanting to sort of uh, pay respect to that but also, you know, all eight of my great-grandparents are Québécois or right. Acadian or First Nations. And so, and we all come from Quebec. So there, I can't think of anything more. That is where I am from. <laughs> like, it's, Yeah,
0: no, I like that.
1: Yeah, yeah so that's
0: I, probably me that has to change that. You may have talked me into it. I like it. <laughs> sa- same thing, all of my great-grandparents were all from Quebec, every single one. Yeah. So no, that's awesome that you can take ownership of that. You know, because of that heritage. I love that. Um, And one of the things you bring up in this piece um, is you compared kind of like the battles that were faced by the Franco-Americans versus those by the Quebecois. And you seem to have a pretty uh, unique perspective uh, to be able to bring to that discussion. So I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit.
1: You know, from reading a bit of Mark Richard, he um, I met Mark in Montreal, we both were asked to do a, a reading at the American embassy years ago, and he was reading, uh, I think, either from an essay he had just written on the KKK and, and Franco-Americans or from his book in progress. And sure, he um, uh, so he, he's a historian at um, uh, Plattsburgh and um, Franco-American uh, historian. And so His article always has stuck with me about about this unique moment in the 1920s in Biddeford and throughout other Franco-American towns, of Franco-Americans encountering the KKK and having to take a stand uh, for themselves, for their right to be in the United States, for their right to be in Maine. And um, it just really struck me. And I think um, in this piece, I write about it because it's almost like look this is you know maybe there's a aspect of our of, of our identity that is by contemporary cultural standards invisible although I don't think it is but but look at this unique story you know we as this ethnic minority group um, were pursued by the KKK and we stuck up to them and we, kicked them out of Bitterford. You know, my grandparents and their friends, you know, they wouldn't let the KKK cross the the bridge from Saco to Bitterford, and they threw them out. And I think my parents, my father had told me one time that in fact, Franco-Americans like threw one of the KKK guys in the water in the Saco River. Yeah. So like there was a lot of resistance, like in just sticking up for themselves. And I thought that's so heroic, and it's so, must have been so scary, but it's also this beautiful sense of, like, uh, self-respect and indignation, and having come just from Quebec, where, you know, as Québécois, like, there was so much oppression, and, and that in part led to this mass migration, these unfair you know, rules against our ethnic, our ethnic group in in Canada, which led to in part this mass migration for survival to the United States. And then we come here and then we're met by, you know, this group of hatred. And, and the, the, the uh, reaction is to like stick up for ourselves and throw this guy in the river and not let these people cross the bridge into our town. And it was just so, um, it was so beautiful. And then, so, and I was yeah. There's a point in the essay where I talk about, unlike our Quebecois kin, Franco-Americans would evade decades of additional exploitation and suppression in Canada. So the Quebecois had you know decades and decades, generations and generations of being just cancelled out and suppressed, and and their culture, our culture, you know, being ignored and bullied out of existence. Attempts of that, and even now, and so. Yeah, we evaded that as Franco-Americans to some extent, but I think what we did face was this legacy of invisibility. So sure. my great my grandparents' generation fought the KKK, but by one generation, two generations later, you know, most of the descendants, you know, are struggling to to relearn French. But I do still think we are integral. Like our our identity is still we are still Quebecois American. We are still Franco-American. We are what we are. That doesn't change. Like, you're not less whatever you are Armenian American, you know, Hispanic American, sure. Korean American, if you don't speak the language, in my mind. You are what you are. Your, your heritage is what it is. Your grandparents came from where they came from. Can you access less of our, you know, um, maternal heritage, our patrimony, whatever? Yes, if you don't speak the language, yes, you, right. you do access it less, but we are still what we are.
0: I'd like to move on to A Wayward Landmass, which is a story yes. that you wrote, which is very, very cool. Okay. Maybe you just tell us what the story's about.
1: That was, um, I believe, so the first piece of this um, series that I wrote with the same protagonist, uh, Corinne Rue. And um, it's about uh, Corinne Rue, who is um, fairly new to, to uh, Montreal. And um, her... <laughs> Franco-American. Her uh, parents, elderly parents, come take a visit to Quebec and the three of them, not to Montreal, but to her um, grandfather's birthplace and her her grandfather's, oh Wait, I believe her grandfather's and her grandmother's birthplace. And the three of them look for her Pepe, so her father's father's tombstone in a a cemetery, and they're having a difficulty, uh, having difficulty finding the tombstone, but it's also a story about um, their relationship, the three of them, and and Corinne has just gone through this painful breakup with this um, Anglophone Canadian woman, Moira, really in a lot of pain over that, and her... You know, her elderly parents um, are in their in their, the way that they can, you know, trying to offer comfort, which is sort of a culture clash in ways um, sure. at, at times. Corinne trying to ed- educate her parents about things she's learned in Montreal, and they're kind of annoyed at it at times with it at times. And, and each each person has their own bit in the story, I, I, I alter between, um, you know, point of views. So it's the father and then it's Corinne, then it's the mother and trying to show different perspective on sometimes the same incident or just to, to try to show uh, their three different realities, but then show how they feel about each other, their perspectives about things. So
0: have you done the look through the graveyard with family thing i've done that with my dad up in quebec and it's pretty is weird. that
1: right yeah you've done it yeah who so were you, you searching for
0: uh my dad my, my double great-grandfather
1: is that right okay so that's powerful
0: it's not something you've done
1: actually i did i did it for my um and it's the same town in fact that i mentioned in the story Saint nobel dathabasca um it's so that's that's my grandmother's hometown but the um the person who was buried there was her brother um, gotcha. and he was the only one who didn't uh, immigrate because he died before immigration to the United States. And so uh, when I was at University of Michigan doing an MFA in creative writing, um, I got a grant one summer to go travel and I went to this little town and I, I went on a search by myself to find uh, my that's cool. Yeah, to find my great uncle's uh, tombstone. And I did find it. And um, I was calling my great aunt. uh, It was her brother. My meme was already uh, gone, but my great aunt was still alive. And I was calling her and asking her and she was telling me, you know, with like really incredible precision where to look in the graveyard. Oh,
0: that's cool.
1: Yeah. And I I found it. And um, yeah, it was it was really powerful, and I I remember the scenery. And um, I guess, like a, a lot of people, you know, like when I when I write some something that's uh, fiction, I I like to start or to I like to include things that are from my life, but kind of sure. to ima- to imagine, you know, what if this or what if that had happened, or what if in fact you know mom and dad had come with me, or right. uh, and what if dad had had this happen in his life? And what if mom had had that? Or what would it be like? And what would these three versions of ourselves or these people, what would it look like? So, so some, yeah, some things were um, out of my memory of, of my own sort of solitary, you know, quest for my great uncle's tombstone. And then I, I thought it would be neat to make it more about uh, this father's uh, Pepe. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, his Pepe. His Pepe and then his mother. I think I have her born there as well, but his Pepe.
0: I did need to bring up one specific line that kind of jumped off the page at me when I was reading this. Actually, uh, I, I pulled the stop and pulled out the uh, highlighter when I got to it. <laughs> Main characters from New England, Boost to Montreal, doesn't like it when people <laughs> speak to her in English. Notes that she does not want to be accommodated. I want to learn French. If I would wanted to learn English, I would have moved to Ottawa. And maybe can just talk about that interaction because I thought that was awesome.
1: You know, this is um, born a bit of uh, some of my frustration in Montreal and I got other that people. Feeling. Who, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, other people who move to Montreal and, in particular, Montreal, which is particularly bilingual. There's this big anglophone Canadian discussion about accommodating. It's almost like. I think the Québécois, well, they do often joke that it's accommodation for all cultures except Québécois culture. So, like, there's this accommodation, I would say, especially Anglophones who speak, in, who speak French, for example, are working at a store and they are supposed to be speaking in French, but they hear that you have an Anglophone accent, which I do, sure. um, they will often switch to English. But, you know, and so I will often continue in French because, That's yes, awesome. I have a huge accent yeah, I have That's a huge cool. accent that that even my mother couldn't understand. By the way, but like I have this, <laughs> huge, <laughs> I have this huge accent. But but I can speak French. So and I'm you know I'm in Quebec. So I want to be speaking French. I want to be speaking the language of my parents, of my grandparents, of my great grandparents, and of, of me. You know, of my culture. Right. So it's particularly special to me because it is it is my parents' first language, but it is also I think technically my first language. And so it's I feel like I am it is my right, it is my right to speak French in, 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 you know, the region of Quebec, so, um, and the Ottawa bit was, you know, I don't know how people would feel about that, Um, but uh, I, you know, because Ottawa, because Ontario, and Ottawa in particular, there are many uh, Franco-Ontarians whose story is, I think, in many ways, similar to Franco-Americans, and Franco, you know, the, the people who identify as, let's say, French Canadian, so you know French-speaking people outside of Quebec. Let's say who might identify as French Canadian. Right. Many of those folks, the same thing with Franco-Americans in Canada have lost their 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 language because of assimilation laws as well in Canada. And so it's the same struggle as us. And it's I find it to be particularly horrifying and hypocritical that you know this has occurred in Canada, which. Um, promotes itself as, you know, you know, so quote multicultural and so quote bilingual. But many uh, people of French descent in Canada have had the exact same struggle of losing their heritage and their hospitals and their schools and their language. So I said Ottawa in the story, um, even though Franco-Ontarians, for example, exist, it's the same struggle very often for them. And so it's it's a bit of a dig. particularly Moira in this story, (laughs) who who, who is an Anglophone Canadian and who I think would, in in my mind, sort of was a champion of this cultural mythology of Canada being this like morally superior uh, multicultural land, where in fact, it's the same old assimilationist struggles as, you know, United States, for example. So it's kind of a dig at her because it's like, in her mind, where is mine? Well, Ottawa, Ontario, and Canada is supposed to be respectful of multicultures, you know, but it's really not of Quebecois culture or French Canadian culture to the extent that um, even the franco ontarians will have a challenge to hold on to their language. So she, so Corinne, who is getting a sense of what is a possible insult to an anglophone. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, uses, absolutely. uses that and i think i think there's a line there where she's a little bit unsure if she insulted her or not or something yeah, that's so. awesome
0: all right i'd like to transition to another story you wrote called stay or go which is yeah. very cool a lot of, a lot of similar themes yes obviously, to get the same main character uh, yes you know maybe you could tell us what the story was about yes
1: yeah, so the stay or go is um it's corinne rue and um she is now, let me see, this stay or go would be I think the second story in, in what I saw as this, this this series. Um, this one was uh, published by Michigan Quarterly Review um, and she at this point um, is deciding whether to stay in Montreal or go back to New England and uh, her father has died. Her, she's having some tension with her family members. She's working as a project manager for a software company and sort of running into this, you know, this um, kind of Anglophone Canadian uh, sort of what mythology of itself being this promoter of you know, superlative promoter of multicultures, And so she's running into that at work and kind of pushing against the hypocrisy, which she says, sees as the hypocrisy. She's dating uh, a Québécois, uh, who's an artist and kind of a, a troubled person in her own right. And um, the two are trying to form some relationship amidst much chaos and much emotional chaos, much family chaos on both sides. And Corinne is just simply going back and forth. Do I stay? Do I go? You know, where do I belong? Where am I most myself? Who sees me most? Uh, What will my life be like if I go back? What will my life be like if I stay? It's really sort of about that.
0: No, it's awesome. And one thing, both pieces uh, that we're talking about here, um, that comes up a lot, is the character clearly, clearly has a connection with... with quebec she feels you know that's her ancestral homeland um she takes a lot of pride to be able to speak french yet on the other side it's pretty clear that she's not completely accepted uh, by by the quebecois so she's so she's fighting hard to be part of this group because she thinks she deserves in but but she's not always viewed as being one of them so i thought that kind of came up a couple different times
1: yeah it's insightful and um For sure, that's also inspired by, you know, me, Jane, you know, my own uh, frustration. And I'd say um, being Franco-American and going very much as an adult, let's say, to the Quebec homeland, um, you'll encounter sort of resistance from every possible angle, you know, whether it be from Anglophones who see you. As an American, and are in some competition that I hadn't known about before I moved to Canada. You know, co- some competition with us um, about whatever being morally sup- superior or about being less uh, assimilationist or more multicultural. <laughs> yeah, or,
0: yeah, right. Yeah. So,
1: so there's that, but then Quebecois as well, who may not know our history, may not know that, like, we actually are of Ipiqua heritage and how on earth we arrived in the it, U.S. It,
0: it's, it, the piece, it almost seemed like not only did they not know, they weren't super excited to learn that heritage. Yeah. That I, story, the Franco-American story.
1: I would say, yeah, I would say, like, my, in my own experience, I've encountered both sides. I've experienced, like, disinterest, like, you know, could care less. I'm just either just an American or I'm just or it just doesn't matter or I have also especially people who are maybe a little older and remember that they had had or have cousins in New England or their parents were born or died in New England it runs sort of the range there are some people who are extremely extremely interested in it and there's a very close connection between the two cultures between New England especially Maine and Quebec and but then you know yeah other times there's this this like sort of that that I've encountered myself you know kind of like I know what I am I may be invisible you know to (laughs) you but I am but I but I am this and I do belong here and you know I may be the only one in this little group who knows that I belong here but but I do and it's a it's a lonely feeling you know it's a lonely feeling but it's I mean I am certain of it but it's it's like um, you know. It's funny because I heard recently this um, interview on this show called on, this podcast called On Being, and it was um, this this trans woman was talking about her uh, experience sort of in the world before she transitioned, and she speaks about it almost in the same way. It's like she knew, you know, what she what she you know believed herself to be, and oh, wow. and and in a group, yeah, and in a group, you know, she would not be identified in the way she identified herself but it's almost that it's like I know what I am I mean I am Quebecois, and yes I grew up in the United States but you know my mother's name was Muriel Jacqueline Nadu my you know my <laughs> Pepe was you know Raul Nadu my, my grandmother was uh, Glyn Duby and so like you can't get more Quebecois or Acadian or than that like this is all around so who I am so Yeah, it's it's, to be an American, you know, Franco-American who goes into the land, the homeland of Quebec, you you must be prepared in a way I wasn't. Or you don't have to be prepared, but just you will encounter this sort of um, challenge always to be seen or acknowledged or recognized or welcomed sometimes, you know
0: there's a couple other works I need to get to because I think they're really cool the complicated concept of home for a franco-american woman loving woman which I thought yeah. was neat and one of the things that jumped out at me you noted that the franco-american in Quebec is made to feel more American than perhaps she ever has yeah 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 I was just like you tell you about like obviously I mean I'm guessing that was a uh, personal experience
1: yeah um I think it's it's sort of like a little bit of, uh, what I was kind of mentioning. It's, um, but because I was born in the United States and I, and I am American, like I'm, 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 um, you know, I'm, I'm American of Quebecois. I'm of, uh, what American of Quebecois heritage, but, um, but I hadn't really thought much about, um, what being American was. I wasn't forced to think about it much until I moved to Canada. So to another country. And I think, um, Abby Page, I think I heard her speak a little bit about this too, like, um, you know, until someone is constantly reminding you that you are not them, or you are not born there, or whether it be an Anglophone or Quebecois, um, I would say it comes much more from the Anglophone community. That's how I've experienced it. I've, I've been many times from, um, I remember working this technology company for five years after my Fulbright, and uh, it was an anglophone company. And I think I mentioned this in the essay, you know, it was the the weekend of the Boston bombing. Yep. Um, yeah, And people were saying things, it was so insensitive, like people were going around saying like, you know, God, you know, the Americans, one little boy dies and they send out the National Guard, like, God, you know, they're so violent, they just like come out with these guns after whoever and but like I had a niece living there I had two brothers not sure. far from there. I had lived in Boston for 11 years. I had tons of friends and many many people at the company knew I was American. So it was it was sort of like at that moment it was sort of like a disregard for for my American heritage being something worthy of any respect. It's like if you're American you know, you, you're not worthy of the same respect as another immigrant because it's just you're just an American. And we have every I think most people think they have every right to bash Americans and that there's no human feelings associated with that identity. And so that's part of it. But um, and so I felt in those moments, I felt very American because it's like, my God, this is where I was born. This is where my family is. And you know, I'm tied emotionally to this place and people that I know might be hurt. So, you know, you're, you're not being human to somebody who is in pain right now, me. And right, um, yeah. if, if I knew that something had happened in the country where you are from, or, you know, I would just out of respect, like, say, are, is your family okay? Are you sure. okay? So, it's moments like that, where I was like, well, either being ignored it, or whatever, it forced me to identify with being an American, um, or other times, you know, simply saying, "Oh yeah, I grew up in Maine," and you know, people saying, "Oh, I'm sorry that you are from the U.S.," or you know, "Oh, that's too bad that you're you're from there." Or one time, I remember saying I was homesick, and um, a Quebecois guy, I mean, just wouldn't let it go. Like homesick, homesick for what? Like why on oh, earth? why? Like, why would you be homesick for the United States? It's such a horrible place. It's like, my God, like, if we're, you know, if we're gonna go there, then like, you know, if we're gonna talk only about the worst stereotypes of any country, then we can pull that out for any country oh, possible. Of course. So I, yeah, it was like those moments were even sometimes rarely, but sometimes saying the most simple thing, just identifying where I'm from will like unleash this, like rage of my like, country toward me oh, and i'm wow. just like trying to eat like my you know, <laughs> little rice or something yeah, right. but, so yeah No,
0: the one story that comes up with this i'm gonna have to ask you to tell because it reminded me very much of something that happened to me my dad and my uncle when we tried to go find some records in a church Okay. And the person who we talked to did not expect to see us show up at the door and had a very funny reaction. And you write about that uh, in this piece.
1: I think it's the very beginning when I go to... Yeah, you're the, looking uh,
0: for your grandmother's birth certificate.
1: Yeah. And it's, so it's near Victoriaville. It's Saint-Novaire, uh, The woman, I remember I went to this little uh, Deponer, We say it's like a little uh, corner store. And um, it was right near the church. And I said, you know, because I had not... On the church door, no one was there. I went to the Depano and I said, "You know, do you have any idea how I can contact someone with the church?" I actually forget her name, but they, they said a name. It's like you know, Sandra or something like this. Yeah, she takes care of the church when the priests aren't there. Let me call her. And so they yeah. they called up yeah. this this woman. She met me. She lived like a block away. She met me uh, in front of the church, and um, I told her who I was. Like you know, my grandmother was born here, and I'm just curious if I could if her birth records are there, if I could just see. And she, um, first of all, she did end up helping me and I did find them. But her reaction, I don't remember if it was before or after, but her reaction was um, because I I was speaking French and she said, you know, you know, how, how is it that an American can speak French? (laughs) And, And so I, I, many times I have to explain many, many times, at least once a week, I'd say in Quebec, I have to, I have to explain, um, well, it's actually my parents' first language. My heritage sure. is Kipikwa. and and um, and so I explained that to her, and that my grandmother had born been born there and had immigrated to the U.S. and, but I thought it was funny because there is this this stereotype too, which I I think is just that a stereotype because I would say most every American I know speaks um, speaks more than one language. I mean, this this I'm sure it's I don't know that it's um. I don't know that Americans speak or, you know, are speak one language far more often than many other countries. I, I I find many Americans speak more than one language. So it was just such a stereotype that you know no American can speak another language other than English. But but more than that, it was like, well my God, it's like my whole family's first language. So like it's so far from the stereotype that this woman had of me um, that it was just striking. Like, oh my god there's this disconnect she doesn't know this about me that i am really 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 like quebecois <laughs> you
0: know yeah no absolutely <laughs> it's, it was funny because we went to uh my, my dad myself and my uncle we went to a church in town tiny place saint monique uh quebec right. and uh we It was the priest was there so <laughs> knocked on his door and kind of like the similar reaction but obviously my dad and my uncle speak french they you know spoke yeah. at the house growing up and he had no idea what to make of the three of us showing up at his door
1: wow. that's so funny and did, did they have to explain like their they did
0: history? sure did yeah absolutely
1: that's so funny
0: one thing that would like to talk about because I believe it's an experience that your mom had if I'm not mistaken which mm-hmm. was those who you know they, from new England may go to Quebec from a time for a time and mm-hmm. then return all of a sudden now we got phrases and words that they didn't have when they left and then and then there being a reaction to that when they come back
1: it was really I always thought that was incredible um yeah so my mom grew up in Bitterford, so she spoke you know Franco-American French and when she went to Montreal she encountered more of a well Quebecois French but probably more also of an international French and so There were words that were different. The accent probably was a bit different, at least with some people. And I think she felt very self-conscious about that. I know she did. She talked about that all the time. And she felt very self-conscious. In the same way, I think that some people coming from France to Quebec, there's a tension there because some people from France coming to Quebec will make fun of the Québécois accent. Whereas, you know, the Québécois have just been here doing their thing, you know, for, for a very long time, and so for someone to come in and say, "Why, God, you're not speaking French," but in some ways, it's it's the same thing with Franco-Americans because when Franco-Americans immigrated to the U.S., certain parts of their language kind of froze, sure. and so my parents, you know, used certain terms that Quebecois no longer use, or might have had a, a regional accent that kind of froze, and so I think that's what my mom sort of transported with her to. To, to Montreal. And so she, you know, learned, I think, more of a whatever standardized or Québécois French while she was in school and she was studying all in French. And, and then when she came back to Bitterford three years later, um, she said she felt like she uh, was considered a, a snob because her accent was different.
0: Is that crazy? That's yeah
1: crazy. it's so crazy so she had to she intentionally reverted
0: yeah, to, that's nuts.
1: yeah. but yeah. I hear I heard between her French and my father's French a huge difference like my mom I could understand my mom's accent better than my dad's my dad's was more regional his mom was born in this little town saying Athabasca. my mom had studied in um, Montreal and so I could hear the difference actually between accents gotcha. But she felt like, especially when she spoke to her family, that she had to use a different accent than what she had learned in Montreal.
0: That's yeah. wild. Yeah, I thought that was that was kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, I did want to move on to a couple of the uh, radio documentaries you've done. Sure. And the first one, I got a story I've told a number of times on this, is that, you know, the church I grew up in, that my parents got married in, my grandparents got married in, uh, is now storage for the palace theater yeah. here in Manchester. So I'd like to talk about the, pa- your the documentary you did called the passing of St. Andre's church in Biddeford. Can you just tell us about that. That was way cool.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Devastating. Um, when I was doing my Fulbright that year, I, I happened to at a party, meet a producer from CBC radio who put me in touch with another producer. I met a reporter. She put me in touch with a producer, um, because she she learned what I was doing in, in, in Montreal and anyway one of the two documentaries I did um, I, when I found out my church my parents' church my grandparents' church in Bitterford was closing this Franco-American church it just seemed you know tragic and, and momentous in this way that you know it was a something was happening in our culture and I just asked them if they'd be interested in me. Covering the last mass and just asking family about it, and they they said yes. So I, so yeah. I, so I brought this equipment with me to this last mass at Saint Andres and this this church that was uh, part of the school that I had gone to, that my mother had gone to, that my siblings had gone to, that my grandmother had gone to. Sure. And I recorded the mass, and then I interviewed. I had already interviewed my parents for. My first radio documentary, and they were terrified. So I didn't put them through again. (laughs) I just thought everybody would be like, "Yeah, put me on national radio." But my parents were like, "No way!" And they did it only only for me. So the second one, the closing of St. Andrew's Church, I asked my brother. I asked my brother's friend, who was a family friend. I think that was it. And then there was me. And so we just reflected on what had happened. At the church while we were growing up, what we loved about it, what we remembered, and uh, what the church meant to the community, and just how it was a very, you know, it was a, it was a sort of a huge piece of our culture, and, and how to just trying to come to terms what, with what was happening when that church was closing.
0: It, one thing I found uh, super interesting and uh, absolutely rang true from my experience, the, those that viewed it, you know, as a passing, that had absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they still practiced the faith.
1: That's very true.
0: Even those who had nothing at all to do with the Catholic Church anymore still viewed it uh, with the same amount of sadness.
1: You know what, that's incredibly true, and it's funny because it just came to mind. It's almost like the same thing as feeling like an American, even when you didn't know you felt like an American, when, you know, you're in Quebec, like, and people say certain things to you. That's how I felt with the closing of the church, because even though I hadn't Gone regularly to mass for years, I recognized it as a part of me and my culture and my family's culture, and so did Robbie, my brother, who right. you know did not identify with the church. And he's he's married to you know his partner Steve, and he um, you know didn't feel really welcomed, um, you know uh, I think throughout whatever his his marrying Steve and sure. all this stuff, but he absolutely I think felt the same thing that I felt, which and my parents felt, which was this is, there's something very sad and important and happening here to our culture and to the passing of an important aspect of our culture and we want to be present for it. And we all were, yeah, I agree. It was something that was so fundamental to our our identity, it didn't matter if we had gone recently or not, you know, to that mass, uh, to that church.
0: Sure. No, I think that's so awesome. I'm super. I'm very jealous that you got to have that experience. Uh Prince, I, 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 miss- was no, I was not around uh, ah, when okay. St. George closed. Uh, but right. no, that's that's. I mean, it's awesome that you got to be there. You got to hear the last homily. I think That that's very neat. I think that's very cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously, before we, this has been a blast, by the way. But <laughs> before yeah. we go, I got to touch on the the radio documentary that you previously mentioned. I think that's a cool way to kind of end up. Sure. How did that, you tell us what it's about. How did that come about? Obviously you conducted interviews with the folks and that's super cool.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, um, that was the first one I did. So after I met this reporter who put me in touch with this producer, I called her up. I said, Hey, I'm Franco American. I'm here studying for a year and this is who we are. And she said, um, there's a story here, come in, talk to me, make some notes. And I said, I'd like to go and uh, interview my parents and my great aunt, uh, my father's aunt, who was the last remaining person in her family, the last person born in Quebec of my father's family. And so I went and I uh, went back to Maine with this equipment, interviewed my Matante Saman and asked her about immigrating to the US, asked her about her farm in Quebec, asked her about my meme, her sister, you know, and asked her about just being Franco-American and speaking French. And then I did that individually with my my parents as well. Just, you know, basically what is being Franco-American to you and you know, where does the French fit in? And my parents had different, you know, different thoughts about that and um, told me a little bit about their childhoods and my mother, who did this out of pure love because she was terrified, <laughs> uh, <laughs> she, you know, just spoke about her time in Montreal and kind of being happy, you know, that I had kind of followed her path and um, was proud that I was in in Montreal and kind of exploring our heritage as well in the, in the same way, in, in a way she had done. So, yeah, it was just sort of, it was me, you know, my first year in in Montreal, in Quebec, um, coming to terms with who we were, and I was, you know, coming to terms with who I was, who my parents were, sure. and then just wanting to ask them about it, like, "What do you think this is about? Who are? Who do you think we are?" <laughs> you know, and yeah, where Was there anything we- that
0: surprised you in their answers, any of
1: them? I remember my mom saying, and my dad too. I remember them saying. I don't think I even asked a question about this, but they both said something like, I'm not ashamed to speak French. I'm very proud of it. Like they said that kind of apropos of nothing. And I, it made me realize, oh my God, they had felt ashamed.
0: Yeah. There's a lot behind that for sure. Yeah.
1: Cause I was like, well, of course you wouldn't feel ashamed, but I realized, oh my God, they they had felt ashamed because um, their stance was to be apologetic, to feel lesser than other people because of their heritage, because of their ethnicity, because of their first language, but them seeming to come to terms, especially when asked directly by their daughter, you know, who might not have uh, grown up with the same shame or awareness that there was that shame. I think now living eight and a half years in Quebec, I understand that shame better because I've, I see, I know the history better and I see it manifested, but that, that was um, this sort of beautiful, vulnerable, and sad moment, but it was like, it was like um, almost this moment where I wanted to just encourage my mother to be even more proudly who she was, because she was admitting this vulnerability, and this vulnerability where I, you know, would have hoped there would have been pride, and there was pride, but I, I saw it was like this window into her history that I hadn't quite understood fully um, this, this this struggle that that she and my father and my grandparents had gone through that was sort of beautiful and sad all at the same time and I was I was glad to, to be there to maybe you know encourage like um, pride in who she was but it was also like oh my god you've you've suffered and I'm sorry
0: Yes. Yeah so much in that that's that's so amazing that you're able to uh, capture that that's so great Thank Thank that's a very cool and last on this uh, one thing you mentioned is that you moved to Montreal for school but that you never want to leave and I'm yeah so I'm gonna check in with uh, do you still feel the same way uh, what no. makes you what makes you have a tie to that place that you didn't have even for Lake Biddeford?
1: I'd say uh, it comes and goes. I, I did leave. I left after six years. I lived with my mom in Bitterford for two years, and I fell in love with Bitterford all over again. And then I moved back for a bunch of really reasons I don't really understand, um, but it was spur of the moment. And I've been back two and a half years, but I do go back and forth all the time about whether to stay or go, just like Corinne Rue. Um, but I think I think I now feel like... I'll always have this link even if I return to New England, I'll always have this link with Montreal because it became my city. Quebec became my homeland in this time. I learned so much about it. i studied so hard, you know, our history. I studied French and so I now have access to our culture in a way I I didn't have. So, you know, uh, whether or not I stay there, I do see myself back in New England at some point. Um, I'm just... I'm still so homesick for, um, I don't know, for the beaches and for um, like my certain family members, just like my aunts and my cousins. Sure. So, but I see it a little differently now. Like, I just see it as, as like, even if I leave, like Montreal and Quebec is much more a part of me than it, than it ever was and it really just will always be. So and I'll always have access to it, I'll always back. Is it so, that's awesome more complicated than the statement i made in that in that but also more kind of integrated into me you know than it was sure yeah
0: i think it's awesome that it's a more complicated answer now yeah. I think that, i think i think that's super telling it makes life super interesting actually the fact that it's a yeah. more complicated answer i love that no this has been a blast this is way cool so where can we send people uh, if they want to read your work
1: My work is publishing a bunch of different literary journals. It's published in independent, uh, you know, literary journals. I don't have an anthology yet, but um, I can send you that list again. um, Sure.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure to include that. I just want to make sure that we can link it so that people get access. Sure. Because it's way deep. Well, again, this has been author Jane Martin. Jane, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It was super fun. Thank you now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share but the spirit never dies our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive